Well, good morning, Door Creek. It is uh, good to be together today. I got a bag of change here that was just handed to me by Bev. She said a little girl came up last night and she said to the woman back at the connecting point, she says, I, I want this to go in the offering this Christmas. So here's a, here's a, a bag full of change and a, a dollar bill here for, for Advent Conspiracy. And it's great to see uh, God's generous spirit being modeled and reflected here in this place and encouraged to uh, receive emails and hear from many of you here in the church talking about how just hearing God's word on the subject of generosity has uh, taken deep root and begin to think, uh, shape how you think and respond to this whole matter of living and giving generously. And that positions us well to do a lot of good. Remember what the Bible says, be rich in good works, be generous and willing to share, 1 Timothy 6.18, and so excited about the Advent Conspiracy monies that we'll be taking in two weeks, so remember that two weeks from now. If you're not here, you can always do that online or just designate it. And then just for us as a church family to finish our, our, our calendar year in a strong position as we're a little behind the eight ball in our just regular giving here to meet the needs of ministering to kids and students and adults here in our city and around the world. So we're just finishing that three-week um, series, and so we're gonna go back to where we were. Do you remember where we were? So for those of you who are maybe joining us, I should first say my name's Mark, one of the pastors, and we've been hanging out in Paul's letter to the church at Corinth since September. So grab your Bible, get to chapter 10. Uh, it's where we left off, and it's gonna help you understand where we're going here today in chapter 11. So in chapter 10, he's ending the discussion that began in chapter eight, remember the question was, so what do we do with food sacrificed to idols? Can we eat that? And Paul go, he spends a lot of time, a couple of things he says. Well, food's neutral, right? Doesn't make you more or less godly. And idols really don't exist. Um, and so you're free to eat, but just because you're free doesn't mean you should. Because you should always be doing life seeking the good and betterment of others before yourself. And the fact that you might feel free to eat it might actually trip up one of your brothers and sisters in Christ who maybe came out of that pagan worship, okay? So look at verse 23, and I'll just point out a couple of verses here to help us catch up with where he's going. So this is chapter 10, verse 23. I have the right to do anything, you say, Paul quoting the church, but Paul says, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others, right? That's the, the principle he's been hammering here. Go to verse 31 of chapter 10. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. Even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I'm not seeking my own good, Paul says, but the good of many so that many may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And so he's talking about, look, as followers of Christ, our main goal is to bring honor and glory to God. And the way that we do that is not by exercising our rights, 
but always submitting our rights to the good of others, seeking their good before our own. That's the way of Christ. Christ said, my life for yours. Christ surrendered his rights as the son of God and he took on human flesh and he died on the cross for us. And I'm following that example and he says, and I'm calling you to follow that example. And when he was talking about food sacrifice to idols, that was working out their faith as they were living it out in community. Now he says, follow that example as you live out your relationships here in the church. So chapters 11 through 14, the focus moves to as we gather together and worship and serve each other. Chapters 12, 13, and 14 with our gifts. And, and chapter 11 is really tricky. I mean, it is full of sticky wickets. It is full of complexity. Um, but what, what I want you to see here, the first half of chapter 11 from verse two to 16, that's gonna be all about following the example of seeking God's glory before anything else. That I don't wanna do anything that would draw the focus away from Christ in worship and distract my brothers and sisters from seeing the beauty of Christ and focusing on him and his truth and his grace. And, and he's gonna use this word dishonor and disgrace to point out that, hey, what you're doing here is not bringing honor, it's not bringing God glory. And then in verses 17 to the end of the chapter 34, he's gonna zero in on what it looks like to seek the good of others before ourselves, and especially what it looks like when we don't. He's gonna say we're gonna do more harm than good. All right, so that kind of gives us the lay of the land, where we've been, where we're going. We glorify God as we seek the good of others before ourselves. All right, so Craig Blomberg, writing on this very passage, says this. This passage is probably the most complex, controversial and opaque of any text of comparable length in the New Testament. If you were here four weeks ago and we started the series on contagious generosity, remember what I said some of you were thinking, uh, you're just ducking a hard passage. This is a really hard passage. I had a friend, when he grew up, he had a pastor that whenever he came to like a hard word to pronounce in the Bible, like uh, Mephibosheth, right? He would go, da, 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 hard word, and he'd keep going. Literally, that's what he'd go. And so I was thinking, maybe we could do that as preachers with passages, not just words. And we'd go, today, we were supposed to be talking about chapter 11, hard passage, turn to chapter 12. We're not gonna do that. Uh, he goes on to say, a survey of the history of the interpretation on this passage shows, shows many different exegetical options with a myriad of questions, and, and it should move us to this place of a tentative humility as we hold to our understanding of this passage, okay? So let me read it so that you get a, a grasp of what we're talking about in the complexity and the questions. So we're in 11 now, verse two. <clears throat> I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions, the teachings, just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. 
Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. So I'll just do it. It'd be like me pulling out this new favorite hat. This is the hat that was given me in Israel. It was just lying there on the bus from a group before us and no one claimed it. And on day two, I forgot my hat and I claimed my new favorite hat. I love this hat with this long bill. I'm sure it's goofy looking, but just be thinking about a man wearing a hat. So I'm just gonna keep it on for a while just so you get in the flow of the text here. All right, every man who prays or prophesies, verse four, with his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, dishonors her head. It's the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it's a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created from woman, but woman from man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. I told you it was a tricky passage. <laughs> All right, I'll take that off now. Uh, so, complexity. A lot of hard things to try and figure out. That's one part of what makes this hard. The other part, it's, it's an incredibly emotionally freighted subject. What is this subject? The relationship between men and women in the church. How does it work out? And the reason it's emotionally freighted is we, we have to remember that there have been so many abuses to what God has brought into life as it relates to how we live in love with each other. And so there are women in our church who they, they hear these words and your guard's up right now because you've been around dominating men who wanna push you down and push you out to the right place and they've used the Bible to do this. And so we, we, we just have to recognize that we'll bring some emotions to this. And we just kinda keep those in front of us and we're praying, God, through your spirit, help us to understand your word so that we're not understanding your word on the basis of my feelings and experiences, but on the truth of your word that I might live it out and experience the goodness. Help me hear your good word so I can sort out what happened, what I'm feeling was dissonant, so I can sort that out, keep it in front of us as we seek to people who know better how to glorify God as we seek the good of others before ourselves. So quickly, let me list out some of the sticky wickets, the problems, the exegetical difficulties in this passage. So what is this whole word head? What does it mean? 
Obviously, there are times when he's using it literally, and obviously there's times when he's using it metaphorically. What does it mean that the head of Christ is God, that the head of man is Christ, and the head of woman is man? What does that mean? Should it be translated man, woman, that same word can be translated in its context, husband, wife. Is this about a marriage relationship, husband, wife thing? Is it man, woman? Is it sometimes either or? Those are tricky. What is this gift of prophesy? We know what praying is. What is prophesying? What's the big deal about a head that's covered or uncovered? What are the social, cultural things that freighted that and informed that? Is there anything from culture that's informing this? Does this have to do with Corinth? Does this have to do with just creation? How does a covering or lack of covering dishonor? Who does it dishonor? What is this covering that we're putting on? Is it a veil over the face? Is it a hat? Is it a scar? What what is this? And then verse 10, what in the world is he arguing on the basis of angels? Where did that come from? Where is that in the Bible? That a woman should wear a head covering in worship as they're participating and leading because of angels. What? All right, so that's, that's all the stuff that's not clear. So let's not spend time on the things that aren't clear and... Godly men and women don't all see it the same way. Let's focus on what is clear. So let me, tell, let me help us walk through what I think is clear. The first thing is, we know there's a problem. So he praises them right in verse two. Then he sets up this foundational teaching with the, the adversative but. He hits it again in verse five. There's some kind of a problem that he's addressing. We may not be clear on what it is, but there's a correction going on here. In two through 16, I would call it a, a, just kind of a, a mid-course correction. In, in chapter 11, 17 through 33, it's a smackdown, it's a right hook, it's like a strong rebuke slap in the face. But we know there's a problem, there are problems that he's addressing here. We know the context of the teaching actually isn't the marriage relationship because the setting here is public worship. I say that not only because it talks about men and women coming to church, praying, and prophesying, but because verse, verse two from chapter 11 all the way to the end of chapter 14 moves us to this grand discussion of four chapters all about the church gathering together. So we talk about this, right? You hear this, the three Gs, the big three, how we grow as Christ followers here. We talk about gathering on the weekend, growing in a group, and then giving of yourselves. This is all about gathering on the weekend. So it's not about marriage, this teaching, it may have implications for it, but it's fundamentally, the context here is the gathered worship of the church. And in that, what's also clear is that men and women both participated in that and both had an opportunity to pray and to prophesy. That's clear in the text. What else is clear is that both told that they could bring dishonor, depending on what they had or didn't have on their head, as well as they could both bring honor to God. So the teaching was clear, and it was also clear that in dishonoring, they would not be bringing glory, they would not be bringing honor to Christ, to God. The other thing that's clear here is that gender matters, that they are different. There's different things that men are called to do and that women are called to do. And even though we see distinction and difference in gender, we also know from verse 11, this nevertheless, 
that there's great mutuality, there's equality within all believers, including the men and the women. So he makes that point explicit in Galatians chapter three, verse 26 through 28. For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. That's how we come into relationship, through faith, not works. And all who've been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. That's the baptism of the spirit that makes us one, that our water baptism points to, right? It's like putting on new clothes, and now in this new relationship with this new clothing on, there's no longer distinction, right? No Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female. Why? Because you are all one in Christ Jesus. All right. Lots that's not clear. Hopefully, you're beginning to say, well, there are, there's a lot here that is beginning to become clear. So let's talk about his approach. It's kind of like what they taught you in how you handle a conversation maybe with one of your kids or in the workplace, right? You start with praise, so he starts with praise, right? Then you get to the tough stuff, and then you, you, know, you put the other side of the cookie on, right? You got, you got the Oreo thing going on in that cream that's not so sweet for the person hearing it is that constructive word, right? So he starts with praise, verse two. Look at verse three. Verse three then becomes this foundational teaching that is filled with this conundrum of what do we do with the word head? So let me read it again. So this is the foundational, the foundational truth that his teaching kind of rests on. So they've, they're holding to his traditions, to his teachings, right? But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So there's this foundational truth that he's, that he's lying down here, and, and it begs the question, and so it raises the question, that is, so what, is, what do we do with this metaphor of the head? There's three options. One is, head uh, speaks of the source, so we talk about the headwaters of a river, right? It's where the river begins, the source of it, the spring of it. So it speaks of source or origin. Uh, another is, uh, not so widely held, is the sense of preeminent or topmost or representative. So we, here's an example of that would be uh, the department head, right? Th that. Then, then there is this whole thing of head means authority over or leadership. So Christ is the head of the church. So we don't have to know for sure what the foundational truth is to understand the teaching, but we're gonna try and figure that out. So it's my responsibility to kind of work it out. But I've gotta work it out, as Blomberg says, with a tentative humility, because godly people disagree here. So let me tell you how I've been wrestling with it. So as I've been wrestling with this, I'm trying to read verse three and the other uh, verses that apply to this word kephale, head, and plugging in source, plugging in preeminent, plugging in authority over leadership. And what I come to, and I hold it tentatively, is I think the best reading here is that authority over leadership which over history has probably been the dominant view, but there are many today that hold to an understanding of it's the source, that's what it means. So one of the reasons I say that is 
because when you get to the relationship of Christ and the Father, it, it starts moving towards what actually was called heresy, where Christ is not equal with the Father, but he, he comes from the Father. So this whole thing of source can get a little sticky there. So when Paul writes about Christ and our understanding of who he is, he makes it clear that there is no pre, pre-source to Christ. He's always existed. Look at it in Colossians 1 verse 17. He, Christ, is before all things. There is no beginning with him, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. So just my humble take on this is, I I think it's better to read it in this way. So what it's talking about here is within equality, In the relationship of the Trinity, God exists in one person. God is one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all equally God. John 10, 30, Jesus says, I and the Father equals one. We're one. That's why they crucify him, because he claimed to be God. But he comes on the scene and he says, my will is to do the will of the Father who sent me. The end of his ministry, three and a half years later, he's in the garden praying, God, if there's another way, plan B, please let it be plan B, because I don't know if I can go to the cross, take this cup of suffering where I take on the wrath of God to free people from your wrath, take it away, but not my will, right, be done, but yours. So what helps me in this whole thing of, because it sounds like these two things can't go, they cannot work. How can you be equal and yet place yourself under somebody's leadership? Well, that's the story of the gospel. He is equal with the Father, but he places himself under the Father's will to do his will in this world for our good. And when I see it lived out in the Trinity perfectly, it gives me a picture of how it could be. I know we mess it up. We mess it up, God doesn't. But I think that's what's going on here relative to how do we make sense of it. All right, so that's his approach. And we're gonna agree the understanding of head could be one of those things where we're gonna agree to disagree. But I think the teaching's clear here, verses four and five. I mean, if we wanna just reduce it down to its simplest, men, take off your hats in church. Women, put put something over, not necessarily a hat. Put something over your hair. That's in its just simplest way that you could reduce the teaching. How he grounds the teaching, the reasons for that, he he argues in three ways. He starts in verses eight and nine, arguing from creation. Do you see that? For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So the order of creation and the purpose of man needing woman and woman coming alongside, not just to help Adam in his lonely state, but so that he could accomplish what God called him to do, to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill the earth with God's glory. Image bearers, these children of Adam and Eve. 
So he argues from creation. Then in verse 14, you'll notice, he argues from what he calls nature, good for us to just understand, from customs and cultural customs, that's what he's talking about, because what does he say? He says, obviously in Corinth, a man with long hair is gonna bring dishonor. That would be seen as effeminate. Tell Clay Matthews that today, all right? That's not, a, that's not our issue today, but that was their issue. Now, what do we know about the Old Testament? That men with long hair, some of them had long hair because they took a Nazarite vow where they, they dedicated themselves to God's service. They would never drink alcoholic fermented uh, beverage, right? And they would never have their hair cut. So it meant godliness in the Old Testament, but not in Corinth. It meant something else. So he argues from creation, the order and the purpose, he argues from customs and cultural customs, and then he just goes down to verse 16, and what does he say? From practice. Look, this is not a one-off, it's not an anomaly, it's not a footnote for Corinth. This is the practice of what? All the churches everywhere, all right? All right, let me just throw in the thing on angels, because you're going, what is verse 10? So here's an interesting thing. When we were just in Israel, we were heading down to the Dead Sea, and off to the right, we didn't get a chance to visit it, but we could see the caves. I've been to the caves. So these are the caves along the Dead Sea where the shepherd boy in 1947 was herding his goats, and one of them got up in the caves. There's caves all over. And he, and he throws a stone to get the goat you know, back to the pack, and his stone hits a clay pot, and something shatters, and he runs up, and they discover these old Dead Sea Scrolls that predated the, the oldest manuscripts we had of the Bible by, listen to this, a thousand years. Unbelievable. That's a whole other story, but fast forward. So it not only had translation of scriptures, like most of the books of the Bible, but it also shared a lot about this Qumran community that let, lived there and were doing life together. And in those writings in the Dead Sea Scroll describing life of the Qumran community, it talked about their belief that as they gathered together like we are today, that they were gathering in the presence of heavenly beings. So in light of the fact that as we worship, Paul says, and the angels are surrounding us, let's show that sign of honor and respect, women, by covering your head, men, taking your hat off, okay? Okay, so implication, oh no, before we get to implications, verse 11, huge, huge, huge. So nevertheless, in fact, this for me is another reason why I think head means authority over, not source. But as it gets to 11, nevertheless, to me, I think is an important, important truth. Let me just read it again. Nevertheless, in the Lord, now that we're in Christ, this new relationship with Christ, Galatians 3.28, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, right? Adam came from Eve, excuse me, Eve came from Adam, so also every man born is born of a woman, right? But everything comes from God. He's the only one who's independent of all things. So everything comes from God. The nevertheless, I believe, is this very graceful word of caution. It's, it's a qualifier. Nevertheless, guys, don't get goofy here as I've just talked about the order of creation. Don't get goofy here about your wife being created as your helpmate, your soulmate, to help you do what you need to in life to honor and glorify God so that you might miss the point, and that is that you are equal 
There is complete mutuality. Your lives are bound in each other in Christ and you need each other. You cannot function independently of each other. This is a huge, huge teaching. And the implications are many, but let me just point out three. First, Paul has a very high view of women that was countercultural, even though some of us read Paul and go, I don't think so. This this sounds completely archaic. Let's, Let's just remember, a woman in the Jewish synagogue could not speak. When we went to the Wailing Wall, Not only did we need to wear a a, a head covering, the men, but the women couldn't get up to that court. They they were in a whole other place. The whole temple and tabernacle, remember? There was the court of the women, and then there was the court of the men. There was separation. This is completely countercultural for this rabbi who was steeped in Judaism. And it was countercultural to the the day and and the ways of the day and the customs of the day. When we read about Paul in his churches, like in the, 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 the letter to the church in Rome, you go to chapter 16, and it's a list of these godly women. Women who had the home, their, the, the church met in their homes, like Aquila and Priscilla. Priscilla, she was a hostess to the church in Rome. You had women who were prophetesses. You had women who were godly women who were at the heart of leadership in the early church. That's true throughout all of Paul's churches and letters. And I just want to say, man, it is really important for us to have God's view of women and women in leadership and ministry. And my life has been profoundly impacted by godly women, starting with my mother, whose relationship with Jesus was as real as anything I'd ever seen, whose heart and love for Christ was always pointing me to him and other people to him. My three sisters, two of them who married pastors, gave their lives for the work of the church. My three beautiful daughters, who love and serve Christ today in the churches where they are doing life and ministry with God's people. I think of the godly women that I served with for 23 years at College Church and the godly women that I get to serve with day in, day out here at at Door Creek and I am so grateful. Think of Bev and Candy and Bonnie and Lynn and Melanie and Deb and Becky and Heather and many more. And then I don't know if you know this but the leadership board, the stewardship board of our church is comprised, four out of the nine are women And I'm so grateful for Marty and for Michelle and for Jen and Deb who make us men better leaders because they're at the table. And it's really important that we catch up not with our feelings, not with our experiences, not with the the traditions of the past, but with the truth of the word of God. And that is that God has gifted us and God has made us equal in his sight from day one. That is who we are. And we embrace that, we celebrate it, and we go beyond that to say, I need women in my life. And I haven't told you about the most important woman in my life, and that is my godly, wise wife. I would not be anywhere that I am today without Lori Peterson, my fair. She's the love of my life, but she's the grace in my life. And so we need to see that. And and the interesting thing here, guys, is that we can be hurt by men and women and we just kind of pull back and go, I don't don't need that. 
I get what we're saying is, that hurt, I don't wanna do that again, experience that again. But actually the teaching of scriptures, we need that. And even as we need that, we recognize something that is really um, being tested today in our day, and that is that there is difference, even though there's equality. There are men and there are women. There's a thing called gender, and it's created by God, and it's in the gender of male and female that we together reflect the image of God. He creates us in the image of God, male and female. That means, men, we do not perfectly mirror the image of God. Women, we do not perfectly mirror the image of God. The image of God is only seen in us together. Does that make sense? But we live in a day that's trying to just kind of get away and make it just androgynous, that there is no such thing as gender. There's confusion. We need to be full of grace. But the truth is clear. Gender matters to God. It's at the heart of his creation. It's the heart of his mission moving forward in this world. And so we don't dismiss it. We embrace that with grace. And the final thing, implication here is that... Um, we don't think enough about the corporate nature of church. So why, why are you wearing what you're wearing today? Why, why'd you put that outfit on? Well, I'm noticing it, not too many Packard jerseys. You had your day on Thursday and <laughs> wow. Um, you know, some of us may go, well, it's Christmas, I thought the red thing may work, or it's just comfortable, or it's getting cold, or it looks cold, I'm just wanna, we just, we're thinking about what we put on, right? But it's, it's interesting, it's, it's, this is a, what, what is this about? It's actually talking about apparel, which you wear to church. Yes, it's freighted by the other cultural things associated with it, but it was this whole thing, of, have, we, have we ever thought of this, that how I come to church could actually help people focus on Christ or actually hinder their focus on Christ? Ah, that's a really important implication in the scriptures. All right, so that's two through 16. We're not gonna spend this much time on 17 through 34, I promise. So we're gonna go from hats and head coverings to getting drunk in church. Doesn't that sound exciting? <laughs> and the Lord's Supper. So here we pick up this repeated theme of seeking the good of others before myself. The other is seeking God's glory before my own, right? So, uh, verse 17. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, uh-oh, for your meetings do more harm than good. Can you imagine hearing that read in church? So Paul's going, all right, I, I just got the news and I've got bad news for you, that you're actually doing more harm than good as you come together to worship. Wow, that's a messed up church. So remember, the next time you hear someone say, we just need to be more like the first century church. Yeah, which one? <laughs> okay, in the first place, verse 18, I hear then when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. Well, he's already talked about divisions, chapter one, right? Over the leadership. I think this is different. No doubt, there have to be differences among you to show that, to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. They thought they were, but it's not, he says. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? 
What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. All right, we gotta catch up. Corinth doesn't look like Door Creek. They're not in this big hall, all right? They're in a home in Acts 18. He moves out of the synagogue and he moves into Titius Justice's house. That was how the church started as Paul planted them. So Lydia, she's hosting the church in Philippi. Nympha in Laodicea, Priscilla in Rome, all right? These are house churches. They're small and they're diverse. So there's men and women, there's Jews and Gentiles, there's rich and poor. And when the church met, man, it was a big deal. Some of us have this experience. I remember as a kid going to visit some friends who were Amish, new friends, they had Swiss background, my parents, anyways, so we went to the church, and it was like an all-day deal. You went to church, and then you stayed for a big meal. Well, so think about when they did church, it was like, it was long, they didn't just go for, it was like in and out, okay, did that check one hour thing. And I was like, hey, there's a little touch of heaven, we're sticking around. This is hard out there to be a Christ follower. They hung around. And one of the things that they did is they had this love feast, agape feast it was called. Just think church potluck. People are bringing stuff, right? So they would have the worship, they'd have the meal, they'd have the Lord's Supper. That's all part of it. It's important that we remember this as we're trying to make sense. So the problem is they're doing more harm than good, he says. So our ears are ringing when we hear that more harm than good because he's just said in 23 of chapter 10 and again in 31 through 11, 1, that you, that you gotta seek the good of others before yourself. And we're going, uh-oh, uh-oh. So this is what it looks like when you don't. You do more harm than good. And people are actually leaving church not only drunk, but more importantly, completely humiliated. And the division here, I believe, is not so much over the leadership issue of chapter one, but the, the, the division here is between the haves and the have-nots, the rich and the poor. You know, unfortunately, it's not something that most churches wrestle with in America because most churches haven't figured out a way to do that. When we talk about being a church for all people, we're not just talking about our ethnicity and racial backgrounds. We're talking about where we stand socioeconomically. That is the biggest challenge. But it was there in the church, but it was divided. So there are these private parties. We don't, we don't know exactly how this worked. So it could have been because the poor people had to work more that the, the, the rich people could say, hey, I know church starts at five today, but let's show up at four and let's have our own little supper thing and we'll be meeting up in this room in the house. And then when the other people came at five, they, they were told, well, that, that room's full, but you, you know, there's a brown bag here and some PB&J, and you take your meager food that you brought here, and you go have it here, and by the time they get to the living room to have church, the people upstairs who've been at it for a while, they're drunk. And those people down there are humiliated because they already know who they are. You get the picture? It's really important we catch up with it. So Paul's teaching, he says, look, you're not eating the supper. You think you're celebrating the Lord's Supper? When you do life together like this, 
you're not communing with God when you take the bread and the cup. So he goes back over it, right? Verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And we given thanks. He broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So, this is what the Lord's Supper is. It's a remembrance of Christ's body, broken for us. We see it in the bread of his blood shed for us. We see it in the cup that reminds us that we're living now under the promise of the new covenant of sins forgiven, not on the basis of our obedience to the law that we know we can't keep, but on the basis of the one who did keep the law and drank the cup of God's wrath for our disobedience and rebellion so we could experience new covenant grace and mercy and forgiveness. And so when we do this, he says we're preaching that he died for sins. We're proclaiming his death until he comes and he's coming again. And so he says in verse 27, so then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy way will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Now, as a pastor, we we have this phrase called fence the table. Protect the table from people who would take communion thinking that somehow it's magical and it brings you into this relationship with God. And so we talk about if, and I'll say it in just a few minutes, if you've placed your faith in Christ, this is for you. The other thing we talk about is, hey, you may not be in right relationship with the Father. And if you haven't been living according to the one that you love, who died for you, don't pretend that everything's right this way when it's not right this way, and don't drink in an unworthy manner. A lot of times this has to do with, yeah, I, you know, I, I, maybe I sinned against God, but we haven't worked it out that actually the unworthy manner here in the text, the first application is, so how have I been responding to people in need around me in the church? Have I actually been oblivious to them? Have I humiliated them? Because that's drinking in an unworthy manner when our actions don't jive with the one we say we are following. And so he says in verse 28, so here's what you ought to do. Everyone ought to examine themselves. So what I tend to do is I do this. Lord, how are we doing? How are we doing? And he's pushing me to say, Mark, we're not doing any better here than you're doing with Lori than you're doing with those that you work with, than you're doing with the people in your life that I've called you to serve. So examining is, yes, it's this. But look, we, 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 God does not allow us to separate our love for him and our love for our neighbor. They go fundamentally together. So he says, he says, examine yourself before you eat. For those who eat, verse 29, without discerning the body of Christ. So what does it mean to discern the body of Christ? To recognize Not just Christ, it's not that his body is this bread, is this wine or grape juice, but it points to Christ. But discerning is not only recognizing Christ, but recognizing Christ in his body. So that what I'm pulling together here in this teaching is quite clearly this, that when I dishonor and I abuse and I neglect those that God has called me to serve and grace and love, 
Well, then I'm doing that against Christ, not just against somebody in the church. And he goes on to just give this stern, stern warning. He says, that is why, verse 30, many among you are weak, listen to this, and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. That's biblical language for they, you've died. People in your church have died. They're weak, they're sick, they're on that path. And the reason they have is because they haven't connected the dots. That we, as followers of Christ, are to seek the good of others before ourselves. And when we humiliate and despise the body of Christ like this, we are under God's judgment because he cares about the glory. He doesn't want people to think in the world that this is what God is like. Because see these people, how they treat one each other? That's just who their God is like. And he moves in correctively to discipline us, to protect us from ultimate judgment, and to preserve the glory and honor of his name. But, verse 31, if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when you are judged in this way by the Lord, we're being disciplined, so we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. No more private dinner parties. All eat together so that everybody could share Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. Eat together, don't come too hungry. You're gonna put yourself in harm's way. And when I come, I'll give you further directions. So this is serious. And as we close, we take that to heart. This is a sober word, not just of correction, but of strong warning. It reminds me, Mark, Door Creek isn't about you. Don't make it about you. Church isn't about us and what I can get out of it. Church is fundamentally, because of what we receive from God through his son Christ, we are positioned to give back to him and others, seeking their good before our own. Church is about the people, not just about God. And we need to remember that as we come into this place, as we come into a small group. It's not just about me. It's not just about God. It's about his family together, loving him and loving others. And so I've got to ask myself the question, am I doing more harm than good? I'm doing more harm than good if I distract you from focus on Christ. You're doing more harm than good if something about even your physical appearance is actually distracting people from Christ. I'm doing more harm than good when I fail to understand that we're one in Christ. When I function independently, think I don't need you. And when I fail to live and love like Jesus. Let's pray. And so Lord, we would just repent that it is our nature and everything around in culture supports it that we ought to to seek after that which is for our good. And we wanna just say that you are the one who satisfies all that we deeply need and may we find our fullness in you. And Lord Jesus, we pray for your mercy and grace. If we have tried to seek our own praise and glory and not yours, and if we've despised your body and how we've mistreated those around us, and we would pray, Lord, with with the reality that maybe we just didn't know it, that we've actually humiliated people who are in great need because we were just completely insensitive 
to where they were and are. And so Spirit, fill us because we know that you always shine the light strong on Jesus. We, we wanna do that. And so transform our motives, our gatherings, our groups, this church by your grace for your glory that we may do good, not harm, that we might live to seek the good of others before ourselves. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.